Hello, my beautiful people, and welcome to Up Level Together podcast, place to up level in every aspect of your life, from personal development to mindset and spirituality to business tips and relationships building. We bring you best interviews, tools, and inspiration where one episode can change your whole life. Here's your host, Jasna Borza. Hello, my beautiful humans, and welcome to yet another episode of the Up Level Together podcast, where we bring amazing conversations. I have been blown away by your feedback and the kind of conversations that we have been having lately on this podcast, all intended to make you wonder, make you question and create a space for an aha moment that could forever change one's life. So I am super excited that today is no different and I have an incredible guest. Uh, Guy Reeb uh, is someone that I met a few months ago and from the first conversation with him, I have been completely blown away. He is an absolutely incredible entrepreneur, but more than that, just a really beautiful human who has been through so much in life and has so much to teach us. So um, a few years ago, he actually came to Minnesota to attend uh, treatment for drug and alcohol addiction at Hazelden, Betty Ford. And after completing treatment, he was encouraged to find his own sober living while in intensive outpatient uh, treatment. And what he saw was the need to improve things. He noticed some of the problems or the things that the facilities could be better, the, the treatments could be more organized. And a true entrepreneur that he is, he opened his own own sober living facilities and now into multiple residential facilities and is just not stopping. We talk about his own journey and how he found himself in the world of addiction, how it started with just some innocent drinking in college, where how he progressed to drugs. We talk about the day drinking of so many people today who are working from home. We talk about what it takes to actually decide to get sober, what people can do to support um, those the lo- their loved ones who are going through any kind of addiction. And we also talk about some of the changes that are really needed for people in recovery. There's such a stigma about people who are sober, who have recovered from drug and alcohol addiction in terms of employment, in terms of just re-entering everyday life. Guy has a lot of um, insight into the things that could be changed on a legislative and a national level as well. And lastly, he is such an incredible entrepreneur with so many different ideas. He's um, created this incredible, incredible aspire of sober living here in Minnesota. And we talked a little bit about what it takes to really persevere and create something that is um, very successful and that it aligns with his own mission to provide clean, safe and welcoming sober living environments so you can help others maintain recovery from substance abuse. And as you will hear, what a fascinating human and what an incredibly interesting conversation about addiction that really plagues so much of our society. Fabulous, incredible, amazing conversation. Um, And without further ado, here is my conversation with Guy Reeb. Hello, Guy, and welcome to the Up Level Together podcast. I am so darn excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. 
Oh, it is my honor to talk to you. We have had so many conversations. And I remember, I don't know if you do remember, the first time we talked and I said, I have to have you on the podcast. Do you remember that? Yes, yes very much. Ever since I've heard you speak and all of the things that you have done, I have been so um, moved by the journey, but what you have been able to accomplish. And I really, really believe, I believe the stories we have and the stories we tell have the power of reshaping our lives and the lives of others. And you have one heck of a story and what you continue to do for yourself and your communities are inspiring. So I'm like super excited. <laughs> so much. It really is an honor to be here. And I'm excited to talk about you know my story a little bit in the hopes that somebody else can relate and understand that they're not alone out there. And um, there's a lot of work being done uh, in this community here in the Twin Cities to make it uh, a place where, where people can, you know, live and succeed and, and excel and recovery. And so thanks again. Oh, I love that. Well, we're going to get to talking about the um, uh, sober living here locally and nationally and talking a little bit about that. But, you know, before you founded Aspire, you actually came to Minnesota to Hazelden yourself for treatment. I, I Before we even get into this, how did this remarkable man started this initiative? I would love to hear a little bit more about your own addiction journey. Like what, what happened? How did you end up in that spot? And just like, what was that like? Um, just tell us a little bit more. Yeah. So, you know, I had a great upbringing. My parents were wonderful people. Um, I come from a pretty fortunate background, um, two hardworking parents, but, um, you know, my, my childhood was, was fairly normal growing up. I was very into sports. Um, I, I thought I was going to play college football, went on a, a visit to Ohio University with my cousin. You know, one of the, the first things I saw when I got there was people out playing volleyball, drinking beer and laying out in the sun. And I decided that this was more of the, the lifestyle I was looking for. And, you know, to, to rewind a little bit, high school was you know, fairly, fairly normal. Um, a lot of my time was spent playing sports. Um, but, you know, I did dabble with things like drinking alcohol, smoking marijuana. Um, but uh, that was all kind of happening around me with, with other friends. It wasn't unusual to be partaking in, in those sort of things at the time. And, you know, it didn't consume my life at, at that point. Um, if fast forward to college, it started taking a bit of a different shape. Um, you met new people, you know, there was a lot more partying going on. And, and part of the reason that I, I decided to go to Ohio University was it was known in the state of Ohio as being, you know, the biggest party school. And that was like growing up and seeing the movies where people are partying and having a great time and all of like the socialized socialization happening. That to me was like the most exciting thing. Um, and I knew if I was going to play sports, it was either going to be, you know, sports and academics and no social life. Uh, and and I, I knew that I wasn't going to be happy doing that. Um, so I continued on for the first couple of years in school, um, smoking a lot of marijuana, drinking a lot. Uh, again, nothing uncommon for, for where I went to school at. Uh, it started taking a different shape when I began having this anxiety and hindsight is, is 2020 it, it when everything was kind of transpiring 
I thought, you know, that maybe there was something more wrong with me. Um, why am I feeling like this? And, and that led to self-medicating with things like Xanax and alcohol and, and you know, the constant alcohol and marijuana. Those were always constants in, in my life. Um, and that really introduced me to prescription medication. And, and from there is when things kind of went downhill. And it wasn't an instant downhill journey. It was a slow over the you know course of a couple of years. And I began dabbling in, in different uh, drugs and you know began selling them myself and the whole lifestyle. It was that's that was very enticing to me living, you know, uh, on the edge and and doing things that were breaking the law and and you know feeling like this feeling like I'm getting away with it and um doing what what I wanted to do I, I think that was one of the most appealing things and everyone around me you know, was also partaking in a lot of this and so to me at the time it seemed okay and it seemed normal and my family growing up um like I said they were awesome parents there's nothing that they did not provide for me that, that left me wanting. And, um, you know, today we have the best relationship ever and for that. I'm, I'm very grateful. Right. But growing up, my dad, especially and, and his friends, they were you know, very successful individuals. They partied really hard and there was a lot of drinking and, and other activities going on behind the scenes. And to me, that is what I idolized. I wanted this fast lifestyle, you know, lots of success and lots of money and, you know, just excess of everything. Um, and that is who I wanted to be when I grew up was exactly like them. Um, but it wasn't until later on that I realized that everything is not always as it seems. And, um, you know, I ended up getting into opiates and that ended into, you know, a, a heroin addiction. Um, I ended up having... How old were you at, at that time? So the first time I tried heroin, I believe I was probably 22. Um, by that time, my, my senior year in school, I had an incident where um, I ended up smoking some marijuana that had something else in it. And I, I got myself in, in trouble legally. And that's when I think my, my family really started realizing that something isn't right here. Mm -hmm. And I, I finished school from uh, a different branch at Ohio University that was closer back to Columbus, Ohio, where I grew up. Um, so that was, that was really the start of, of the, the major you know, downfall. And once I got into the, the opiates, um, where I, I grew up, Percocets were a very big thing at the time and they were very expensive and i had developed a 300 a day habit um and that was with opiates and you know benzos like xanax and then the constant alcohol and marijuana um was there as well and somehow by the grace of god i managed to graduate school and i, I got a decent job out of college but i was barely just functioning um, mm -hmm. and not functioning at a very high level and from there you know, it's, it's the very common story that we hear all across America, whether, you know, you're rich or poor, or it doesn't matter where you come from or your social status. It, it started with painkillers for a lot of, of people, um, you know, in, in my generation, my age, and it ends in, in heroin because it's the obvious al alternative. It's, it's cheaper. It's more readily available. 
Um, and I ended up getting started in that. And that was where, you know, things became completely unmanageable. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, you know, the, the pain medication that people get really addicted to very often. I mean, we give these heavy, heavy, strong medication to people after they have any kind of injury. I remember when I broke my, my hand a few years ago, they sent me home with an entire, um, I mean, I probably had like entire box of, um, uh, a, a really strong, um, um, opioid. And I'm like, what am I going to, I'm like, I'm not taking this. This is, this is crazy. And I literally put it, I poured all of it into the toilet. And what was really interesting, I was at, I was having a conversation with some friends and they were like, oh my God, why did you do that? You could have given it to me. Mm-hmm. And it was this introduction to the concept that people are actually doing that. So what do those medication do they're meant for numbing pain but do they just like do they make you high like what what are the why do people start taking them what what's the kind of the the effect that they have i think you'll hear varying answers depending on who you speak to but i think at the end of the day it's to escape from something Um, Mm -hmm. to escape from how we feel to escape from anxiety depression hardships um, and for me that, that was everyone else around me was, was growing up and, and getting jobs and starting families. And I, I just felt lost. I felt like I had no direction. I didn't know who I, I was deep down. I I've always had these ideas of who I wanted to be, um, and what kind of person I wanted to be, but I had become so far away from that person that, you know, everyone used to know as guy and had taken on a completely different personality and and my main goal every day was to survive and when you get to that point you place your drug of choice over food and water and your brain actually is rewired to put that at the top of the totem pole and so every action every decision is consumed by that um that drug and um you know again i didn't have any anything crazy in my, my upbringing, any dramatic events that was a turning point for me per se, I'd I'd say the biggest thing that I think had contributed was my sister, Samantha had, had gone through, had been in an accident and they found out she had an autoimmune disease, um, that was found out after her accident. Um, as you know, she had some ongoing symptoms and they couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Um, and it's called complex regional pain syndrome. And she was so miserable during that time. And, and I had just been brought back from, you know, campus to, to live back at home to try to finish up school and, and get my degree and hanging on by a couple of threads and seeing her go through that. Uh, and the, also the amount of pain medications that, that they were giving to her at that time, it, it was just, you know, it wasn't the catalyst per se, but um, it, it was a big factor into um my use and i looking back on it um it it was a tough time but it was obviously a lot more tough for my sister and and i wish i would have have shown up in different ways over you know the course of of my life but thankfully we've been able to put together six and a half years now and I'm, i'm hoping to you know make some of those amends still and and time does heal but um, there wasn't any one large incident that kind of led me off the deep end. 
Right. Well, very often I think you make up a really good point. It's like we can come from from the most normal, happy families, but sometimes at one point we can just be lost and it's one thing leads to another. Um, you know, when did you know that you were really in trouble, like that you have really gone too far? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think in today's society, we don't like to deal with uncomfortable feelings. It, whether it's addiction or anything else, they make a prescription or something to help people get rid of that feeling or to increase other feelings. And it, it hides, you know, our, 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 our own feelings. And I think that our culture and in America has been one that there's a remedy for everything. And if you don't like feeling a certain way, then, Hey, try this here. And I, I think that was, um, yeah, a lot of what went into my addiction was just not wanting to running from my own fears and, and not knowing who I was. Um, that's very powerful what you just said. So we're masking. You're so right. Every time we feel like there's a medication for that, there's instead of attending to the real cause of why are we feeling anxiety or depression, like there's there's always a deeper cause that unless we look at it, it's going to persist um, for for decades in our whole life. Mm. And I know you, I'm sorry, you can cut this out. I know you just asked me a question. I didn't answer it. Can you repeat that one more time? Yeah, absolutely. It was that, you know, how did you know that you have gone too far? No, yeah. that was that was actually perfect. What you just said right now was such a powerful testament and reminder for everyone listening, because I think that you have tapped into the pulse of what we're all feeling, but we don't know the solution to it. Mm -hmm. So thank you for addressing that. So yeah, let's let's go back to like what you know. I'm really curious. How do you know? Like, oh my God, I really have a problem. Yeah, I I was always constantly comparing myself to other people. You know, I eventually found myself in some AA meetings, and rather than looking for similarities, I was looking for differences. And and I think a lot of people who have been through the program can probably relate to that. You're kind of comparing yourself to others seeing how bad am I really you know I, I haven't done x y or z so am I really a full-on addict and I went through that stage for a little while as well um, but when it really dawned on me that I had a serious problem was after my first treatment I believe I was 22 um, maybe going on 23 uh, it was at Glen Bay which is up you know a little bit past Cleveland and, and northeastern Ohio um, I not only convinced my counselor to let me out after three weeks instead of the, the four weeks that I had been approved for through my insurance, um, but that same night that I got out of treatment after listening to everyone speak and, you know, pretty much touting and, and saying whatever I thought the, everyone else wanted to hear, the counselors wanted to hear, that was going to help me get out of there quicker, I relapsed that within a couple of hours of being out of treatment and the insanity of that, you know, and, and I had my family picking me up and it was near Thanksgiving and they were trying to be accommodating and have family over without, you know, any alcohol or partying. And I didn't want that. I didn't want the attention. I didn't want people thinking or talking about me. I just wanted to blend in and I, I wasn't ready to get clean. And that's when you know, at, at the relationship I was in at the time, uh, I was in a seven year relationship, six and a half, seven years. Um, and I know she was doing her best to 
help monitor me and, and, you know, help, uh, be a positive influence as well as, as my family and my sisters. But it got to the point where I felt like I was being micromanaged and any chance that I could get, I was lying, you know, sneaking around, cheating people out of money and, and, you know, theft, all kinds of things to, to get money to, to get what I, what I loved at that time in my life. Mm. So what, what did you go for within those two hours after leaving? Yeah. So funny enough, uh, I heard a gentleman in treatment talking about, uh, DXM, which is part of, you know, like Robitussin. Um, I never really been into any of the over the counter or anything like that. But I, I figured, hey, I can tell my dad who was driving me home. I, I think I caught something in treatment. I, I feel a bit sick. And so by the time I had even got, it was like a two and a half hour drive. I had almost drank the entire bottle because I bought it, went back into the bathroom of a Walgreens, chugged it. And if that's not, you know, completely depressing, then I don't know what is. Um, and tried to play it off like I was normal the rest of the night and then waited for everyone to, to go to bed and you know, drink some, some out. We had a bar in our house. And so I would constantly find ways to get what I, I wanted. And I, I was 22, 23. And so obviously I could buy whatever I wanted at that time, but I had so much supervision. Um, people were, were monitoring like my every move and that made me want to rebel even more. Mm. And so if I would even get a minute or two, I would go into the bathroom and chug whatever I could or do whatever I could. And, and that's when my addiction was like, if my drug of choice was not readily available, I'm going to do anything and everything to get me, to keep me away from feeling the way that I feel when I'm sober. And, and that's something that I, I want to speak about today is, is a big part of sobriety for me is becoming comfortable with who you are and not running from those things, but addressing them. And, you know, I know we've spoke about it, but I've, I've always been a bit hesitant on, on, you know, public speaking and getting out and telling my story to, you know, a larger crowd. And um, for me, it's important to, to address those things head on now in, in my, my life and show up the way that I want to show up. And it's been the most rewarding journey that I've ever had. Oh, I, I mean, I bet I hear people say that all the time, you know, when they go through something so intense. I, re I remember reading a biography of an autobiography of Wayne Dyer, who is a, a spiritual, one of my first spiritual teachers, and he was an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. He talks about the, you know, addiction and what it had done to him, but also how it was part of his journey and how it has strengthened him also after he decided that he was going to do something, you know, about it. Um, and you hear people doing the most remarkable things after they get clean, just like you have in, in our community, we're going to get to that. I want to get to the point of like, how did you, you know, how, what was the moment when you decided to get clean? Because what I'm hearing you say is that people noticed, You've gone to treatments, but like you weren't ready. You said that. So, you know, when was it the, the, was it the first decision when you said, okay, I'm ready and that was it, or were there many? Uh, there was, there was many attempts. Uh, there was three treatments. Um, and you know, the saying about insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And that was the definition of my life. 
Um, and even after I, I went to Hazelden, you know, it's, it's tough being 24 years old when everyone else is still, you know, they're growing up, they're going out and they're having fun. And it, it was, it was really tough, um, to think about being sober for the rest of my life at, at that point in my life. Uh, obviously it's not recommended to, to look at it in that sort of light. The saying is, you know, day by day, um, it's very cheesy sounding, but it's, it's hundred percent accurate. And it wasn't until I had some hardships after even getting out of Hazelden, I, I had got out of Hazelden. I spent two months in an inpatient facility here at Hazelden. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to be coming out to Minnesota for three months. And here we are almost seven years later. Um, it's just the way things work. And I got to a point where I eventually just threw up my hands and I said, I'm tired of being sick and tired and my way is not working and I'm willing to do it a different way. But to get to that point, it was, you know, getting myself in trouble. It was always doing it guy's way and putting my own spin on things. And Hazelden was one of the best things to ever happen to me in my life. And, and the program, the counselors, the, the, the just their, their programming, their process there is some of the best in the world. But I'm sure if you ask them, they would probably tell you I was, I was a trouble patient. Uh, I like to go against the grain at times and uh, be a little outspoken. But, you know, once I got out of a two-month treatment program with, with Hazelden, ended up doing a step-down treatment. Um, it was like a live-in outpatient. It's their St. Paul location. Um, and it's, it's sort of more like a halfway house and day treatment is, is the technical term. Um, and I ended up getting asked to leave from that program after about 10 or 12 weeks for making dumb decisions. And I had relapsed um, and they had said, hey, you know, you've been here for a little while and we just don't think that you're putting in the effort uh, to remain here. And, and they were 100% correct. And those are the things that I needed, the wake up calls that I needed. And so I ended up in a sober house and within 24 hours of moving into a sober house, I had already relapsed, been asked to leave, and you know I'll circle back on this later, but the gentleman who was managing that sober house is now my best friend, and he was the first client of Aspire Sober Living, and he's our senior manager, our offsite manager for Aspire Sober Living. So it's been a complete, you know, 360 full circle. Um, the people I've met out here is a huge reason why I'm, I am sober today. Oh. And isn't that incredible? It's like, and, and you continue to bless these people that you have met that have been in your circles. Yes. And if it wasn't for that situation, I was asked to leave. My family had cut me out and I had my vehicle. It had just been delivered out here. And um, they said, sorry, find another place to leave, live. You have to leave now. I didn't have any money for a deposit, really. Um, I was going to be living out of my car. And, and I linked up with a friend from treatments because I'm not from Minnesota. So I didn't know anyone other than the people who I went to treatment with. And thankfully he was willing to take me in for a few days. Um, and I was given a second chance with this program at a different one of their sober houses. Mm -hmm. And I moved in and I met these guys who were all doing the same things, the same interests. They, it, was, it was like the perfect timing. And it gave me purpose. It showed me I could have fun and sobriety. And that is huge. It's, it's absolutely, you know, instrumental 
and people maintaining long-term sobriety is, is you have to enjoy life. You have to enjoy what you're doing or there's no reason to, to stick with it. And to learn that, yeah. I've been sober ever since, thank, you know, thankfully. And uh, if it wasn't for them giving me a second chance and those consequences, and I, I had been at the bottom of the barrel and um, I know I haven't really talked about it so far on, on, on this conversation in this conversation, but uh, I did, you know, overdose at one point. And even after that, it was, it took me a couple of weeks to finally admit I'm ready to go to treatment. And that's about two weeks after I had overdosed back in March of 2016 um, is when I, I found my, you know, one-way ticket out to, to Minnesota. Oh my goodness. So it's these moments. I have a really um, a question, follow question. I want to talk about Aspire, but before we end this conversation, because your journey is just so fascinating. One of the things that um, we're hearing about right now is that there's so much more um, day drinking. People are, you know, at home, they're not even going places. You will hear stay-at-home moms opening a bottle of wine at noon. Um, and the everyday bottle of wine drinking has become a norm. There's no big deal about it. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just helping myself relax. What are your thoughts about the line between alcoholism and, you know, using needing alcohol every single day to relax? I mean, isn't that the definition of, of alcoholism? Like, enlighten me a little bit about what, what you think is the fine line between the two. Yeah, I, I think there's varying levels of addiction. Um, you have your functioning and you have your non-functioning. Um, really the way that I look at it now is if you need a substance to escape yourself and some sort of capacity in order to, you know, I used to think it would make me a better version of myself. Um, if you need chemicals to be, you know, to escape or be a different version of yourself, um, and if you need it to, to function, I think that in, in its essence is addiction. Um, obviously some people are okay with drinking every day for their entire life and showing up at work on time and, and, uh, not missing meetings and being a, a great husband or wife or brother or sister or son, or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, but for a lot of people, myself included, that just is not the reality, um, yeah, and also, even though they may be functioning really well, would you say if you need a bottle of wine every single day, then what are you, the question is maybe beyond relaxation, what are you, what are you trying to escape? Yes. Okay, that's, it's very powerful. And, and a follow-up question to, you know, to all of us who are observing girlfriends, family members who were noticing that, that it's too much and we are concerned, but how do you bring that up, right? How do friends and family members, um, how should they address that? Should they say anything or should they just mind their own business? Like what is the, what is the advice that to someone right now who has someone in their vicinity and they think that that problem, that that person might have a problem? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. Um, personally, if it had not been for people approaching me and telling me, hey, I've noticed substantial changes in your behavior and in, in your life, I think that you may have a problem. I, it probably would have taken me a bit longer to get the help that, that I needed. And I, I know they're hard conversations to have. 
Um, but in life, we, we do have obstacles and, and hard conversations that, that need to be had. And ultimately, it's coming from a place of care. Um, and so I think the best way, my best advice would be to broach the, the subject um, in a non-confrontational way, if possible. Mm -hmm. um, I know that's not always possible. But at the end of the day, for people like myself, uh, there, there has to be, you know, some sort of consequences. If life goes on and nobody's treating me different and nothing is, is changing around me, then I feel that I can continue on doing what I'm doing. When, when people lay hard and, and find boundaries, that's when, and they stick to them, well, that's the best way, in, in my opinion, is to say, hey, I love you and I support you. But, you know, if you continue on in this sort of fashion, um, I can no longer be a part of that. And it, oh. it's really hard. And I understand I have to have these conversations with families. Um, you know, their, their kids are, are living with us, especially with, with a mother, because it is ultimately like rolling the dice saying, I love you, but I can't be a part of this. And a lot of times it, it leads to somebody being entirely cut off from, from their family. And the last thing that you want to hear is somebody dying from addiction or an overdose. And it is the unfortunate reality. But if it wasn't for tough love and it wasn't for those consequences and for me hitting the rock bottom, then I never would be where I'm at today. And mm -hmm. so it, it's a double-edged sword and there's no easy answer or easy way to go about it. Um, but it starts with, with the people, you know, started with people around you who cared enough to say, I'm really concerned about you. Okay. That's, thank you so much for saying that. And, you know, you mentioned that after Hazelden, which I know of, so many people have had such, um, great experience or great things to say with the program. And it's really good to have the affirmed over and over again. And what an incredible thing that they're doing for the world, right? Because it's just how many of us know people who have had a, a problem and have been able to you know comp uh, get clean and live such unbelievable lives mm -hmm. and that is why you know when i look at you and i look at what you have done not just for yourself individually but what you have done for our community is awe inspiring and i think something that we all have to um hear over and over again and one of the things that um that I wanted to ask you. Um, so, Guy, what, it, what is remarkable to me is that you not only got, you know, got clean and, and decided to um, create this life for yourself, but you started to pay attention to to the kind of housing that was available for people that was, you know, so is it called the transitional housing or sober housing or halfway homes? Um, it, it, you're going to tell us a little bit, but what did you start to notice in terms of um, housing and how did the idea behind Aspire come to you? Yes. Um, so I, I remember vividly, um, this was towards the end of the step down treatment at the St. Paul Hazelden location when they had said, hey, I think we need to part ways. Here's a list of sober living and supportive housing in, in the area. And the list at that time was through uh, what we call MASH, which is Minnesota Association of Sober Housing. Mm -hmm. And I went through this list. There was quite a bit of names and it 
had, you know, locations, if it was for men, women at, you know, the prices. And I was a bit lost. I I'm like, well, you know, I'm not from here. I don't really know a whole lot about St. Paul and the, the good locations. Um, and so I, I kind of went to a place where I thought other people that I knew were, were going. Um, and so that was like the first eye-opening experience where it was, was a bit of a free-for-all uh, in terms of finding quality housing. It's, there wasn't a whole lot of like open tours at the time for you to go and, and check it out. Uh, I was having problems reaching people, you know, when I would call to inquire about availability. Um, and I wanted to live in a place where people were, were serious about sobriety and where I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, sober living was not, not a thing. And if, if there was a house that they called a sober house, it probably uh, was not a very high quality one. And so I had, you know, these, these negative perceptions of, of sober living already. And it's like, well, you know, I may as well just consider moving into my own apartment. Um, I obviously did not end up doing that, but um, I ended up in, in a sober house on the east side of St. Paul. And it was at that point in time where I realized, you know, a lot of these places and I had been over to visit some friends and that was a great thing that I'd like to touch on with, with Hazelden as well as they created a program where when you would transition down to like a step down program, a lot of the same people would be in that program. So it was, you know, you familiar faces, you already knew people. And that was the same with sober living. A lot of the people who were in the houses had been a part of these programs and it's a tight knit community. So we all kind of knew each other or knew someone who knew them. Um, and so in my first few weeks, I had visited a few different houses and I couldn't believe the quality of, of what I was seeing and for what people were paying. Um, and, in term, and you're saying that the quality was not great. The quality was not great. And, and don't get me wrong, there was some places out there that were high quality and, and that maintain a high level of care and, and continue to do so today. Mm -hmm. But when you're in early sobriety and you're not familiar with your environment or a, a whole lot of people, you don't have steady work. You know, it's important that the small things in your life are taken care of and you don't need to worry about them. And to have a place that you can take pride in that you're proud to be a part of, that resonates in the rest of your life. And it really does have a ripple effect. And that is ultimately why I did start Aspire Sober Living is because there needs to be high quality housing at an affordable price. And, and that's really what we're about. Um, but in, in my process of, of getting, you know, to that point where I decided to open up my own sober living company, I was a resident for about 10 or 11 months um, at a, a house on the east side and a manager spot. So a lot of these sober houses have what we call live-in managers. And it's typically a resident who has accumulated, you know, a year or so of sobriety. They're a leader by example. And they help just make sure everything, you know, day to day is, is operating properly, you know, drug tests, house meetings, things like that. But at the end of the day, sober living, it'll vary depending where, where you live. But here in the cities, there's different levels. Typically sober living is like the most independent. So, you know, you can work a job, you, you're allowed overnights and visitations, and it's quite flexible. Um, and then there's things like, you know, halfway houses that have like 
live in staff and cooks and counselors and, and just to give a bit of, of context. Um, and so in this situation, I was asked to, to be a house manager for the Silver House is, is coincidentally right next door um, to the house that I was living in. And so mm -hmm. it was an easy move. Um, I knew a lot of the, the guys over there just from, you know, being in close proximity. And I did that for uh, about a year and a half. Um, but I will never forget when it dawned on me that I needed to, to open up my own Silver House. It was a cold winter day and I walked out the back door to go to the garage and that night before I had been up late dealing with uh, an issue that had occurred um, and I said to myself you know I, I feel like I really have a knack for this I feel like I'm a, a perfect example of people who come to Minnesota for recovery and who stay out here and and you know ingrain themselves in the community and with all the experiences and knowledge that I had, I, I felt like I could do this, but I could do it better. And I'll never forget when it dawned on me walking out, it was like a really bright sunny day. It was way too cold, um, but I, I felt like it was something that I needed to do. And shortly after uh, I was approached at, at my work. Um, so I've, I worked as an account manager for the better part of six years. And I was in this position at that time and they had approached me and said, hey, we know that you're sober and, and you live in sober living. And I have a friend that is looking to get involved in this community and would like to open up his own business. And I said, well, that's interesting because I had the same thoughts as well. And let's get together. Let's have lunch. And so we had a couple of meetings. Um, and it's important to note both of them were what we call normies. So normies are like normal people who don't have you know, problems with drugs or alcohol. And after a few meetings with them, um, I just said, hey, you know, nothing, nothing against you guys, but I want to, to be in this with, you know, myself and, and my family, um, because I understand what addiction is like. And, and I, I think it's just better that I, I go this, um, you know, in, in a different direction. And so with that, um, and, and the support of, of my family, uh, I started Aspire Sober Living. And I, I want to make sure that everyone knows as well that that my mother and father are, you know, very supportive and, and a huge part of, of this business as well. And if it wasn't for them and and them believing in me um, to get going, we wouldn't be where we're at today. Um, so we currently have four houses. We're working on the fourth, but we started with one modest house and um, it's been an awesome journey. It, it's words can't explain. Well, that's what's, what's so remarkable. You know, one of the things that I've noticed in talking to you is that you're an innovator. You're constantly coming up with business ideas and there's such attention to um, um, excellence. I think that is the word I'm looking for. And it shows up in everything that you do. And it is, um, it is really incredible. My question to you is, you know, I I'm curious, do you think that that's all that you've been and just hasn't been you know, directed or focused? Or do you think that some of that excellence and, and innovation and this entrepreneurship drive comes from, from the addiction journey? Absolutely. I Anything that I do, I'm always 100% into. So whether that was drugs and, and addiction or, you know, sobriety and sober living, I've, I've learned how to focus some of, of my, my skills and, and my attributes towards 
things that are more positive. And, and that's something that I'd also like to touch on with the recovery community is, is the people in this community are some of the most pragmatic and the most smart and knowledgeable and crafty people that I have ever met. Um, we just typically tend to use our abilities for uh, personal gains and, and for things, you know, during our addiction that, that aren't so great, but when we focus and direct those towards something bigger than us and to helping others, um, that's when, when people really start to see, Hey, I, I'm, I have a lot of self-worth. I, I see a lot of value in myself and, um, that's what, that's really what helps this community, um, oh. is back to the newcomer. I think that that's so that's so well put and so beautiful and I think that in in the world that we live in there's so much prejudice and um, around people who are in recovery or people who are sober have been sober the moment you hear um, um, you know I've been an addict or th there there is a stigma that we still hold in the society and one of the things in, in that I have noticed and also in conversations with you there's a lot of prejudice in terms of you know professional setting when people want to like regain their, their they have a new life they're brilliant smart pragmatic capable and yet many professional settings or companies don't know how to handle that right. and there's also so much work to be done on a governmental uh, a level from 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 legislator standpoint I, I would love to get your thoughts because i think that you are an innovator in that field as well advocating for what needs to be changed what needs to be different and as i look at you and i look at the trajectory of your life i'm like this man is going to be doing absolutely transformative things for this community i would love to get your your thoughts like what are the problems what are you noticing in the workplace and also in the legislature that just not right that we need to do something about. Yeah, so you know, I, I have a lot of, of thoughts on that too. Um, and things are changing uh, quite quickly, especially here in, in the Twin Cities. But the traditional model was always a 28 day, four week stay in an inpatient facility. And then, you know, you come back home and, you know, you're a changed person, you fixed everything back to work. But the reality is, is that that's not normally how it works. It, it is, you know, especially for people who have been using for 10, 20, 30 years, 28 days is not long enough to get healthy again. Um, and so what people have started realizing is that we need a model that reflects, you know, better practices and higher success rates for sobriety and, and long-term sobriety. That's, that's a very important thing. Um, because anyone can go to treatment for four weeks and 28 days and, you know, be forced to be sober, but it's, it's when you get out, that is you know, when the rubber meets the road per se, uh, and you have the ups and downs of life, you have the stressors from relationships and you're trying to mend, or maybe in some cases break off relationships. And it's that those ups and downs that we deal with in life where sober living was absolutely crucial to me and, and a big reason why I'm so passionate about it. But on the same token, that's a lot of time away now. If, if you are going towards some of the more progressive models, we're looking at maybe two, three months in, in inpatient, then you have another two, three months in a step-down program and then sober living. And so you know, a lot of people now are coming out of treatment after three, four, five months, and they have this huge resume gap. And it was already tough enough with the 28-day period and, and losing your job. And 
you know, the language and, and the conversations with how that would have to go in a job interview. And, and, you know, it's, they're really hard conversations to have with people when you're looking for new work. And I can say that because I've been there multiple times. With today's more progressive models of being a treatment for three, four or five, you know, even six months um, before even having that 28 day gap was, was hard enough to explain that. Um, and so not only do we need to have workplace, you know, workplaces be a bit more understanding, um, but I think that, and, and I would like to reiterate, I, I do believe Minnesota is, has been a great advocate for people in, in sobriety and, and a huge part of the recovery community. They have a lot of programs and funding that a lot of other states um, do not have access to. But you know, I, I think even with that being said, we, we need more funding. Um, There's so many people who are in active addiction who don't have the ability or the financial resources to go into treatment. They can't leave their family or their job for uh, one week, let alone you know eight weeks. And so we, we have to change the way that we're, we're approaching this and the way that we're thinking. And it's not a quick, you know, go to treatment for four weeks and, and rinse off and come back and you're good to go. It's, it, this is a long term and it's a long journey and it takes a lot of support and it's very expensive. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of moderately priced treatment facilities out there, but the reality of the situation is that most people do not get sober on their first, their first attempt. Um, and it becomes a very expensive endeavor to have, you know, some, some additional funding and resources from the state of Minnesota, um, I think would be huge in, in helping people feel comfortable to take that jump, to go get help, to place, you know, themselves first and foremost. And that way they, they don't feel guilty about spending a couple of months away from the workplace. And, and on, you know, the same token, when they are out and transitioning back into the real world, to be able to be open with, you know, HR and recruiters and, and hiring, you know, uh, personnel, it, it was really a tough conversation to have. And after I, I was ready to get back into the professional workplace, it was, you know, very touchy on when people asked me, how did you end up in Minnesota? You know, why, what brought you specifically here? And I found myself lying about a lot of that and not being, you know, forthright about my journey and, and why I, you know, was in Minnesota now. Um, and so it wasn't until I had the job that I have now that I decided to be entirely honest and say, look, hey, I'm, I'm in recovery. I came out here to get sober and, and work on myself. And believe it or not, a lot of people are really open and receptive to that. Um, it's just in today's market with there being, you know, it's so competitive and to, to have a resume gap is, is a tough thing to explain. Um, I would love to see workplaces be a bit more accommodating to that. And, you know, I think, and this is a conversation for another day, but I think a lot of us who get out of treatment and are applying for jobs online, they instantly get filtered out because we have these gaps and we have, and a lot of times you have to remember that people in early sobriety are going to be working relatively easy jobs um, that don't entail a whole lot of time and effort because they're also mixing in, you know, outpatient meetings, meeting with a sponsor, trying to, to prioritize their sobriety first. And so people will typically work an easier job out of treatment. And, you know, that can be a detriment. 
if anyone is listening to this and they're in the power of you know, they have the power of hiring or they're in HR, a really good reminder that hey, like really we have to be a little bit more open and accommodating. You know what what is so remarkable, aspire sober living is one of the top rated um, uh, accommodations in the state of Minnesota. It has this reputation that you're always full, you have a long wait list and people have, people feel so respected and loved and taken care of. And it is a testament to what you have created. I think that um, a lot of my audience are people who are like wanting to start something and they have a dream. What you have been, able to do and create is again awe-inspiring so what's your advice for you know from a super successful entrepreneur uh, with a mission about pursuing their own dreams if they have an idea and they're just feeling like a little scared to get started you just got to go for it and you know jump in with both feet um i thought this was going to be a really complicated process to get started and and it wasn't always easy at times but um there was some some you know legislation and some things with you know city inspections and the paperwork to get approved and recognized as a sober house with you know the state of minnesota and the city of saint paul um that that was a bit problematic at times but that's the only way that you're able to to learn is by taking the risk um, taking a chance and believing in yourself. And um, I, I have always been a very particular person and very attentive to details. And uh, I've applied that uh, with Aspire. And um, I did my research and being in the community personally and being in some of these other houses, I knew that there was a huge need and that addiction isn't really going anywhere, unfortunately. Um, it's what we're going to do to help you know, people in addiction get better and back into the community so they can help other people who are struggling. Um, and, you know, with that, I knew if, if we provided high quality housing, that there would be a market for that. Um, and to treat people the way that I would want to be treated to buy houses and locations that are nearby meetings and food and work and public transportation. Um, you know, it's all of these things that, that, we need to take into account. But like I said earlier, people and sobriety and recovery are some of the most pragmatic people that I've met. And um, I, I think that when we're able to, to focus and, and put our energies towards something positive, I think people would be surprised what they can accomplish. Uh, and when I say if, if I can achieve six plus years of sobriety, then anyone else can do it. I, I truly do mean that because I was not uh, an easy case. And I like to do things my way, um, but there is hope out there. And whether it's sober living or anything else, you know, pick something that you know you're good at and it doesn't matter if other people are already doing it. There's always a need for somebody to do it better. And I think for me, I was always a bit, you know, scared or discouraged because I would look around and say, hey, there's already so many people doing sober living or I had this idea and, and the market's already saturated, mm -hmm. but if you're good at what you do and you put the time and the love and the care into things um, and you make it, you know, you personalize it around yourself, uh, I think people would, would be surprised, um, you know, that they can succeed and not only succeed, but really excel. And 
that's been a huge part of, of our journey as well. So what what a great advice and what a great way to kind of close out this session because people will have listened to you and it is I, I really believe that up level together we believe that one conversation one piece of advice one minute can change your whole life and i feel like what you just said it was just it is so beautiful and so impactful uh guy what is your vision what's next for guy in terms of you know entrepreneurship or innovation yeah a great question so to me i heard a quote not all that long ago um and it's really stuck with me and it it is to create something of lasting value. And that is ultimately what I would like to do, um, you know, not only with Aspire, but with, you know, with, with my life and, and, you know, the examples that, that we're setting for other people in, in sobriety. Um, I, I would love to continue growing and seeing where this path takes me. I think there's still a huge need for quality sober living um, in and around the Twin Cities, but nationwide. I think this is an industry that uh, is really just getting started. Um, and until we figure out as a society, what is the root cause for all of this, these raises in addiction rates? Um, you know, the, the unfortunate reality is, is that this is probably going to continue. Uh, and it's going to be how do we deal with it? And what resources are we providing? What kind of housing are we providing? And um, I would love to be a part of, of that conversation. And hopefully, um, like I said before, we'll have, we have four houses currently, but would love to see that grow and, and working on providing some sober living consulting to other people who are interested in, in opening up sober living, but aren't sure where to start, whether it's with, you know, the legislation or, you know, in a, a good area to open a sober house and, or even down to the house managers and how to train and how to implement a program that, you know, is tried and true. And those are things that we're able to provide um, just from our own knowledge and experience. And my team of great managers, I, I, I can't go through this conversation without giving them a, a shout out. And um, those guys have been awesome. And, and we have a program in place where we could easily train others and, and help them get their management set up. So when situations do arise, you know, they have the tools and the resources uh, to handle those. Um, and so without my guys like Nick and Jim and Don and Corey and Billy, those are my managers right now, wouldn't be where we're at. And uh, they, they put in a ton of work to help keep our places nice, to keep the quality up to our standards. And I'm so thankful for everything that they've well, done. Great leaders do just that. Guy, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I cannot thank you enough for, for taking the time. Um, uh, for everyone, AspireSoberLiving.com is where you can learn more about the company that, that Guy started, the homes. If you know of anyone, this will be the place, a great place for that transition. So I highly encourage all of you to go ahead and do that. So guys also teaching others how to start the sober living. And we're going to hear more from this wonderful guy in the years to come. So uh, I hope that you enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And I will talk to you all very soon. Guy, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great honor. 
Well, there you have it, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. It means the world. Please share with anyone that might find this useful and go ahead to all iTunes stations and please give us a five-star rating. So much love for you all. Please, please, please know that everything can be different. You're worthy. You're good enough. And let's up-level together.